welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. In this series of episodes, we will be taking a look at the life and times of Queen Christina of Sweden, a woman whose long and eccentric life rightfully earns her the distinction of being one of the most interesting monarchs of early modern Europe. Before we begin, however, I'd just like to give you all a brief update on the state of the podcast and the direction we'll be going in in the future. As you are likely aware, we just wrapped up our series on the Paris Commune earlier this month. It was a great success, and I'd like to thank you all for supporting it. I hope you enjoyed learning about the Commune as much as I enjoyed writing about it. Anyway, as previously mentioned, this episode begins our new series on the life of Queen Christina of Sweden. This series should run for about five episodes and conclude in March. After that, I plan to release two more series, although I'm not sure which ones. I have a lot of finished scripts in reserve. After the conclusion of our fifth overall series of the podcast, which should be sometime in June or July of this year, the podcast will be going on a brief hiatus, at least for the rest of the summer. This should give me time to write more scripts for you all, so I'm prepared to launch the second season of the podcast, which will be in early September. And that about does it for housekeeping matters, and without further ado, let's get into the narrative. Sweden, December 18th, 1626. Queen Consort Maria Eleonora was about to give birth to a child. This attempt would not be her first. Six years prior, the Queen had given birth to an unnamed stillborn daughter. Greatly saddened but not deterred, the Queen gave birth to another daughter, whom she named Christina Augusta. She died within the year. Having suffered through two dead children in such rapid succession was devastating for the Queen Consort, and it was the trauma of these events that set her on a long mental decline from which she was never to recover. Her husband, King Gustav II Adolf, better known to the Anglophone world as Gustavus Adolphus, was similarly distraught, writing, I have suffered a tragedy. My wife has brought a dead child into the world. It is because of our sins that it has pleased God to do this. The king was well aware of the implications these events held for his dynasty. Hereditary monarchy was a relatively new institution in Sweden. Gustav Adolf's father, King Gustav I, broke with centuries of tradition when he abolished Sweden's system of electoral monarchy and replaced it with a hereditary one. Now, however, his dynasty, the House of Vasa, was in danger of losing its power. King Gustav II had yet to produce a legitimate heir to the throne. Were the king to die without an heir there was a real possibility that the nobility could reinstate the institution of elective monarchy. Also just as likely was the possibility that the king's Catholic cousin, Sigismund III, monarch of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, would once again press his claim to the throne of Sweden as he had attempted decades earlier. It was feared that, should Sigismund succeed at ascending to the throne, he would attempt to establish Catholic dominion over fiercely Protestant Sweden. The result would be war and devastation. However, the queen became pregnant again in 1626, much to the relief of the king and his supporters. It was hoped that this child, should it survive infancy, would be the solution to the problem of succession that had plagued the house of Vasa. Finally, on the 18th of December, just before midnight, the queen gave birth to a hairy child who screamed with a loud, hoarse voice. The child was determined to be a male. The king and queen were overjoyed. They had finally secured an heir to the throne, and their dynasty would endure in Sweden. Sometime later, however, the midwives came to a shocking realization. Closer examination revealed that the child was, in fact, not a male. As the next morning dawned, the king's sister, Princess Catherine, 
took it upon herself to inform the king of the mistake. She carried the newborn princess up to the royal couple's chambers and laid the child on his bed in, quote, such a state that he could see for himself what she dared not tell him, end quote. Gustav Adolf was unfazed by this turn of events, joyously declaring, quote, she will be clever, for she has made fools of us all, end quote. Historians still speculate to this day as to why Christina was misgendered at birth, and as to what her gender even was in the first place. It is possible that she was born with some sort of genital deformity, or perhaps that she was intersex. Recent scholarship has posited that Christina was a pseudo-hermaphrodite, as opposed to a true hermaphrodite, who is born with both ovarian and testicular tissue, a pseudo-hermaphrodite is born with the sex organs corresponding to one sex or the other, but exhibits any number of secondary sex characteristics, facial and body hair, body form, muscle mass, and so on, of the opposite sex. Christina was brought up as a female, in keeping with all the gender norms of her society, but as she grew up, she made a concerted effort to distance herself from conventional female mannerisms, something that numerous contemporaries would later observe. Christina herself would later write in her autobiography that, quote, God has given me none of the weakness of my sex when he bestowed a soul upon me. Rather, he, in his grace, had made me masculine, end quote. Whatever the case, Gustav Adolf saw to it that preparations were made for his newborn daughter to succeed him on the throne. More importantly, he ensured that she would receive an education worthy of a prince. Maria Eleonora did not share her husband's attitude. She had failed to produce a son as she had hoped, so she rejected the newborn Christina outright, declaring, quote, Instead of a son, I am given a daughter, dark and ugly, with a great nose and black eyes. Take her away from me. I will not have such a monster. End quote. With a mother who refused to even look at her, and a father who was all too often absent on military campaigns, Christina's care was left to her aunt, Princess Catherine. Now, at this time in Europe, the Thirty Years' War had been ongoing for ten years. What had begun in 1618 as a revolt against the Habsburgs in Bohemia had become a massive conflict that pitted Catholics and Protestants against each other all across the continent. At this juncture, fortune had not been favorable to the Protestant cause. The initial rebellion in Bohemia had been crushed, the smaller Protestant principalities of the Holy Roman Empire also made attempts to resist Catholic domination, but all were defeated just the same. When Sweden's neighbors, the Kingdom of Denmark-Norway, attempted to intervene on behalf of their Protestant brethren, they too were quickly defeated and forced to sign the Treaty of Lübeck in 1629, which forbade them from seeking alliances with the Protestant powers. The statesmen of Sweden viewed the situation developing on the mainland with the utmost concern. They did not wish to see the Catholics dominate Europe, for obvious reasons. Preparations were made to intervene on behalf of the Protestant cause. The ongoing war with Poland-Lithuania was ended. Other nations who opposed the Habsburgs agreed to provide monetary subsidies to the Swedes. Soldiers were conscripted, mercenaries were hired. The king planned to land his army in the northern German region of Pomerania and take the fight to the Catholic forces from there. One day, as he was making preparations to depart for Germany, he was approached by his four-year-old daughter. He was rather preoccupied, barking out orders, and he did not notice her. She was insistent and tugged at his belt to get his attention. He was so moved by this that he took her in his arms and burst into tears. Neither of them knew that this would be one of the last times they would ever see each other. Don't let that menacing statement misguide you. In the years that were to follow, 
Gustav II Adolf would go on to win his much-deserved reputation as a military genius. While I will not be going into all the intricacies of the war in this series, perhaps someday we'll produce a series about the Thirty Years' War itself because it is rather interesting content, anyway, it should suffice to say that the Swedish intervention was quite successful. The Swedish army won victory after decisive victory, and more or less single-handedly revived the Protestant war effort in Europe. Moreover, their successes in this conflict helped elevate Sweden to become one of the foremost military powers in all of Europe. More on that later. However, all this came at a great cost. On the 16th of November, 1632, Swedish and Catholic forces clashed near the village of Lutzen, in the electorate of Saxony. The battle was a bloody struggle, with both sides losing over 10,000 men. The commanders of both armies were nowhere to be seen for several hours, lost in the thick fog that covered the battlefield that day. The battle ultimately ended in a Swedish victory, when, that evening, the Swedes were able to force their way across the battlefield to capture the Catholic artillery battery. When the fog cleared, however, the victorious Swedes made a horrible discovery, the body of their king, Gustav Adolf II. During the battle, he personally led a cavalry charge against the enemy, and was killed in the process. They discovered his body lying face down in the mud, stripped of all valuables. The only clothing he still wore were his undergarments and a leather cuirass, which had clearly been insufficient to stop the bullets lodged in his arm, back, and head. The slain king's body was transported from the battlefield to a nearby village, where it was placed in a simple wooden coffin and began its long journey back to Sweden. As the Baltic Sea, which separated Sweden from mainland Europe, was impassable during the winter months, Gustav Adolf's body stayed for some time in the Pomeranian town of Volgast, as it awaited transit back to Sweden. Queen Maria Eleonora was staying in Volgast at the time, and was inconsolable upon seeing her husband's body. His death wreaked havoc upon the queen's fragile mental state. Over the next eight months, she allegedly wept for hours, even days at a time. Maria Eleonora would often quite literally cling to her husband's remains until she was no longer physically able to do so. The queen had Gustav Adolf's heart removed and embalmed, and she kept it in a golden vessel which hung above her bed as she slept. It wasn't until July of 1633 that the king's body reached the Swedish city of Nykoping, where it would be kept until the funeral. Maria Eleonora was insistent that Gustav Adolf's body not be buried while she still lived. She moved the casket into her bedroom and continued to caress the king's decomposing corpse as she slept. With her husband dead, Maria Eleonora turned her attention to the daughter she once despised and rejected. Christina's relationship with her mother until now had been practically non-existent. As previously stated, Christina spent most of her childhood under the care of her aunt Catherine, Gustav Adolf's sister. Catherine, her husband, and their five biological children resided at Stegeborg Castle in the South Swedish countryside, comfortably far away from the intrigues of court politics. Catherine was almost universally liked and respected. Christina would later describe her as a woman of consummate wisdom and virtue. Christina also got along quite well with Catherine's five children, among whom were Princess Maria Eurofazine, one year her elder, and Prince Carl Gustav, both of whom would play prominent parts in our narrative later on. Overall, Christina's time in the care of her aunt was considered to be a happy, tranquil period in her life. But now, all of a sudden, that was to change. Maria Eleonora assumed custody over Christina, showering her with uncharacteristic affection 
and insisting that she take part in her theatrical mourning. She traveled with her to Nykoping Castle, which she had decorated entirely in black and covered every window so as to ensure that not a ray of sunlight could be seen throughout the entire building. In spite of vehement protest from his widow, King Gustav II Adolf was finally laid to rest in Ritterholm Church in Stockholm on the 22nd of June, 1634, nearly 18 whole months after his death. In March of 1633, the Reichstag, Sweden's represented body, unanimously voted to confirm Christina's right to the throne of Sweden. She was henceforth known as Christina, Queen of the Swedes, Goths and Vandals, Great Princess of Finland, Duchess of Estonia and Karelia, and Lady of Ingria. A Regency Council took power in her stead until she turned 18 and was able to rule in her own right. The Regency Council was headed by Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna, an experienced statesman who had served as the king's foremost advisor and administrator for two decades. Each member of the five-person strong Regency Council had been personally selected by the king to take over in the event of his untimely demise. Chancellor Oxenstierna's first act in his new capacity was to revoke Maria Eleanor's custody over Christina, on the grounds that she was mentally unfit. The Queen Mother was placed under what was effectively house arrest at Grisbsholm Castle, some 40 miles west of Stockholm. Custody of Christina was once again granted to Princess Catherine. Christina was, quote, implanted firmly enough to flourish in the genial care of her aunt, end quote. That is, until December of 1638, when, after an illness lasting only two days, Princess Catherine died. Christina had just turned 13 years old a couple of days prior. In the space of five years, Christina had lost both her father and her adoptive mother. Finding a suitable replacement for Princess Catherine would prove a difficult task. The Regency Council made the decision to regularly rotate the position of caretaker, so the young princess would not end up growing too attached to any one woman. Between the ages of 13 and 18, Christina had three different adoptive mothers. The Regency Council's tactic worked. Christina never did form a strong bond with any of her female caretakers, but it would seem that their tactic may have worked all too well, perhaps due to her lack of a strong maternal influence at such a crucial stage of development in her life. Christina developed a deep and abiding dislike of other women. Her contemporaries report that she harbored a disdain for even her ladies-in-waiting, merely tolerating their presence as a necessity. Throughout her life, Christina failed to develop a truly intimate friendship with another woman, with one very notable exception, which we will discuss later. As previously mentioned, Gustav Adolf wanted to ensure that Christina would receive an education fit for a prince. In this time, women's education was not very highly prioritized. Certain factors would improve a woman's prospects of getting a better education. Protestant women fared better than their Catholic counterparts, noble women fared better than commoners, and so on. Regardless, women were, overall, restricted as to the breadth of the topics they were allowed to study, but Christina was to receive, at the behest of her late father, the broad and comprehensive education she would have received had she been born male so as best to prepare her for the challenges of ruling a kingdom. Bishop John Mathie was to serve as her tutor. He instructed her on the topics of theology, philosophy, and various foreign languages. It was said that Christina was fluent in eight languages, including French, Latin, and even some Hebrew. As was par for the course at this time, classical Greek and Roman texts formed a large part of her curriculum. She read these texts voraciously. She was particularly interested in the works of the Stoics. She also came to idolize the heroes of antiquity, 
Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, and so on. A more contemporary object of Christina's admiration was Queen Elizabeth I of England, who the young queen viewed as a role model for female monarchs. When she turned 14, Chancellor Oxenstierna began to tutor Christina as well, teaching her the principles of statecraft and allowing her to attend sessions of the Regency Council firsthand to gain experience. By all accounts, Christina seemed to be possessed of an extraordinary intelligence. Chancellor Oxenstierna once boasted that, quote, She is not like other members of her sex. She is stout-hearted and of good understanding. End quote. Despite dedicating ten hours each day to her studies, Christina also found the time to engage in various pastimes, especially traditionally masculine ones, such as fencing and hunting. A quote from her autobiography, Between what I was taught and what I was able to learn myself, I was able to learn everything a prince should know, and everything a girl can learn in modesty. I loved my books with a passion, but I loved hunting and horse racing and games just as much. Every hour of my days was occupied with affairs of state, study, or exercise. End quote. Her enjoyment of traditionally masculine activities was a logical extension of her overall masculine behavior. She cared little for beauty, only taking half an hour to get ready every morning. She adopted male mannerisms, such as bowing and saluting, as opposed to curtsying, and she swore quite frequently. Such behaviors had a tendency to repel potential suitors. The question of marriage would eventually be the cause of a great deal of distress for Christina in the future, and would lead to her eventual abdication. But this was not always the case. In fact, for much of her adolescence, she was engaged in a courtship with her cousin, Carl Gustav. Not only were they cousins, but the pair had grown up together under the care of Christina's aunt Catherine. Princess Catherine secretly wished for the pair to be wed, and jokingly called them the little bride and bridegroom. Following her death, Carl Gustav and the rest of his siblings moved back to the countryside, and the two went for years without seeing each other. Carl Gustav attended Uppsala University, and went on a grand tour of Europe before returning to Sweden in 1641. At this time, the pair were reunited and developed a mutual affection. They became secretly engaged, and, given the conventions of their time, could have been married right then and there, at ages 16 and 20 respectively. However, Chancellor Oxenstierna forbade such a thing until Christina had reached the age of 18, the age of majority. Nevertheless, Christina and Carl Gustav remained devoted to one another, and Christina rejected the hand of many a foreign suitor because of this. In 1642, Carl Gustav shipped off to Germany to fight in the Thirty Years' War. He and Christina exchanged quite a few letters with each other during this period. One letter, which the young prince was said to have kept on his person at all times, reads in part, quote, Beloved cousin, I see by your letter that you do not venture to trust your own thoughts to the pen. We may, however, correspond with all freedom, if you will give me the key to a cipher, and compose your letters according to it, and change the seals as I do mine. You must take precaution, for never were people here so against us as now, but they shall never succeed so long as you remain firm. They talk a great deal of the elector of Brandenburg, but neither he nor anyone in this world shall alienate my heart from you. My love is so strong that it can only be overcome by death, and, if God forbid, you should die before me, my heart shall remain dead for every other, and my mind and affection shall follow you to eternity, there to dwell with you. Perhaps someone will advise you to demand my hand openly, 
but I beseech you by all that is holy to have some patience for some time until you have acquired some reputation in the war and until I have the crown on my head. I entreat you not to consider this time long, but to think of the old saying, he does not wait too long, he who waits for something good. I hope, by God's blessing, that it is something good we both wait for. End quote. On the 18th of December, 1644, Christina finally turned 18 years old. That day, she met with her regency council. They gave her a formal account of their regency and renewed their oath to the queen. The regency council would remain intact, but would now become a privy council, wielding no power in its own right, but able to advise the monarch directly on matters of state. Christina promised to always follow the council's advice, but now she was queen regnant. Her decision was law, and she was very anxious to exercise her power. This led her into conflict with the man who had been effectively running the country for the past decade, her friend and mentor, Chancellor Oxenstierna. While he may have formally ceded his executive powers to the queen, his influence at court was still great, and he still pursued his own interests, regardless of the queen's will. The first confrontation in this battle of two indomitable wills had actually occurred three years prior to her ascension, when Christina tried to secure a position in the Privy Council for her cousin and sweetheart, Carl Gustav, and was opposed by the Chancellor. Once Christina had ascended to the throne, the first major conflict would be in regards to the peace treaty with Denmark. To explain this, we'll need to backtrack a little bit. Ever since Christina had been removed from her custody in 1633, Queen Maria Eleonora had essentially been living under house arrest. She wanted to return to her native Brandenburg in Germany and leave this country that she had so come to despise. But Chancellor Oxenstierna continually denied her petitions. So she languished in the confines of Gripsholm Castle, but she took up a secret correspondence with King Christian IV of Denmark. In the summer of 1640, along with a few ladies of her retinue, she escaped from the castle under the cover of night and boarded a ship bound for Denmark. She was received in Copenhagen as a personal guest of the king, and she planned to wait there until her nephew, the elector of Brandenburg, granted her permission to return home. The Danish king's reception of the duplicitous queen mother caused a diplomatic incident between Denmark and Sweden, causing more tension between the two rival kingdoms. A little over a century ago, Sweden and Denmark had been united together in one country, known as the Kalmar Union. But, since the Union's dissolution, the two kingdoms had been at each other's throats. Denmark remained the preeminent Scandinavian power, but Sweden was also vying for that position. Now, in this next part, I had written a detailed explanation of the Torrensen War that broke out between the two countries at this time, but I found that it was too convoluted and ultimately unnecessary. The gist of it is, is that war broke out between Denmark and Sweden in 1643, and, owing to their superior army and naval support from the Dutch Republic, the Swedes were able to hand the Danish a series of defeats and force them to the negotiating table. The conflict between the Queen and the Chancellor came about regarding the peace treaty. Chancellor Oxenstierna wished to prolong the war, until he could extract even better terms from the Danish. Queen Christina, however, wished to make peace reasoning that exacting terms as harsh as those that the Chancellor proposed would tarnish Sweden's diplomatic reputation. What's more, Christina simply wished to assert her new power as Queen Regnant, so she overruled the Chancellor, who, to this point, had been the ultimate authority on all matters of war and diplomacy. She opened negotiations with Denmark herself, and she sent the Chancellor to the negotiations on her behalf, which he did, however, begrudgingly. The Treaty of Bromsebro was signed on August 13th, 1645, 
Even though the terms of the treaty were not so favorable as to the Chancellor's liking, Sweden nevertheless received significant territorial and economic concessions. The results of the Torrensen War, as the conflict has become known to history, cemented Sweden's ascendancy to become the primary geopolitical power in Northern Europe. Anyway, the spat over the Treaty of Bromsebro may have been the first of several incidents that saw conflict between the Queen and the Chancellor, but the two never lost the admiration and respect they had for one another. In fact, for his efforts in negotiating the treaty, Christina bestowed upon Oxenstierna the rank of Count, a title only held by three others in the kingdom at the time. The Queen extolled Oxenstierna's praises at the ceremony, saying, quote, Finding myself, by the grace of God, in a position to reward good and faithful services, I confer on you this dignity, the first in the kingdom. I can say with truth and without injury to anyone else that during the thirty-four years you served my grandfather, my father, and myself, you have performed every duty entrusted to you in a manner most worthy of the great minister of a great king. When it pleased the Most High to take my father from this world and leave me a helpless child, you continued to serve your country, and you took care that I was properly instructed. Another in your place might not have known how to impose limits on his ambition, but you have always been loyal, and have remembered what you owed to God and to me, your lawful sovereign. End quote. Of Oxenstierna, Christina would later write, quote, I love this great man as a second father. I owe him this testimony, since, although I knew almost all the greatest and most brilliant personalities of the time, I met few who could stand in comparison with him. End quote. In 1646, Christina's cousin and suitor Carl Gustav returned home from the war to find that she no longer loved him. This was through no fault of his own, but because Christina was beginning to realize the great distaste she had for marriage, sex, and romantic relationships in general. He begged her to reconsider, and even had her mentor, Johann Mathai, speak on his behalf. But the queen was adamant. She would not marry him, nor anyone else for that matter. Being rejected by Christina affected Carl Gustav quite deeply. He sank into a debauched lifestyle, and is confirmed to have fathered at least five illegitimate children by various women. He even considered taking all of his money and leaving Sweden forever to become a mercenary, a plan which he did not follow through with. Christina, for her part, felt guilty for what she had done to poor Carl Gustav, and promised to make it up to him somehow. She gifted him lands and titles, specifically he was granted rights over Uland, a large island off the coast to the southeast. Eventually, she would give him the entire kingdom. All of this is not to say that Christina never again felt romantic attraction. Around the time her feelings towards Carl Gustav began to cool, another man soon became the object of her affection. Count Magnus Gabriel de Lagardie. Magnus de Lagardie was the son of Jacob de Lagardie, a prominent military man and advisor to Gustav Adolf II, and Ebba Brahe, the childhood paramour of Gustav Adolf II. Magnus had spent the last few years abroad at the court of the French king, Louis XIII, before returning to Sweden in 1645. He was educated, cultured, fluent in French, and what's more, handsome. He quickly became Christina's favorite. As tokens of her affection, she began to grant him illustrious promotions that were not befitting of his age or experience whatsoever. First, he was promoted to the Lifeguards, an elite regiment of the Swedish army, and later he was made Sweden's official ambassador to France. Unfortunately, Magnus did not reciprocate Christina's affection. Rather, he became engaged to her cousin, Maria Eurofacine. 
At their wedding, Christina upstaged the couple, melodramatically declaring to Magnus that by allowing this marriage to occur, Christina was handing him her most prized possession, her beloved cousin, with whom she had grown up. Nevertheless, Magnus remained one of Christina's favored courtiers, and she continued to shower him with ostentatious gifts and promotions until 1653, when a critical remark against Christina caused him to fall from her favor. With Magnus married and Carl Gustav rejected, Christina turned to someone unusual for comfort. Ebba Spar arrived at court in 1644 to serve as the queen's lady-in-waiting. She was renowned for her beauty, and she was often cast in the role of Venus, Roman goddess of love, in the fanciful ballet productions that were often held at court. The greatest admirer of her beauty was Christina herself, who took to calling her La Belle Comtesse, the beautiful countess, or simply just Belle for short. She did not possess a great intelligence, an aptitude for the arts, or really any of the other qualities shared by the other objects of Christina's affection, but it was just as well. Christina did not have for her the disdain that she had for her other female courtiers, in fact, quite the opposite. The pair became incredibly close. Christina spent every precious second of her free time with Ebba. Quote, when with her, the queen seems to have dropped her serious wit and her witty seriousness. She was not cynical or intellectual with Ebba Spar, but very young and very gay. Whenever she was with her, Christina was very merry and full of cheerful discourse. End quote. The exact nature of Christina and Ebba's relationship is the subject of some controversy among historians. Was their relationship strictly platonic? Was it ever romantic or even sexual? The simple truth of the matter is that nobody, not even their contemporaries, were absolutely certain. The best source historians have is a series of letters sent to Ebba from Christina. Christina made it a point to destroy all the letters that she received. The letters handed down to us from historians are rich with flowerly worded declarations of undying love and whatnot, but contain no explicit reference to romantic or sexual relationships between the two. Christina and Ebba's relationship was the subject of many a rumor at court, rumors that were often fed by Christina's masculine behavior and her refusal to marry. Upon introducing her bedfellow to an English ambassador, Christina reportedly told him that her insides were as good as her outsides. Read into that whatever you will. The prominent interpretation of their relationship seems to be that Christina genuinely felt romantic feelings towards Ebba that were not reciprocated by her. As was the case with Carl Gustav and Magnus, Christina wanted what she believed was best for Ebba. She helped her get out of her engagement to Axel Oxenstierna's son, Bengt, a man whom they both greatly disliked. Christina instead arranged for her to marry Magnus's brother, Jacob Casimir de la Gardie. Christina's attempt to help her friend find happiness failed miserably. Jacob and Ebba never became that fond of one another. Ebba had three children, all of whom died in infancy, and within four years of marriage, Jacob was killed in action during the Torrenston War. Anyway, this episode has gone on for quite long enough, so I think this is as good a place as any to end things for this week. We will pick up again in two weeks' time with Christina's efforts to end the Thirty Years' War and enhance the cultural prestige of Sweden, with mixed results. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, concerns, requests, or anything else of that nature, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be provided in the description of this episode. 
This has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.